in with us here or on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, we are still here in Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. We won't necessarily dive in in such detail in every passage through Philippians, but we will with many. Uh, And I think it worth our while uh, to focus in here on verses 7 through 11. But so that we can have the whole prayer in context, I'll read verses 3 through 11. This is God's word. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand and believe your word to us this morning, that our love may also abound more and more, so that we too may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is not something that we can do on our own, and so, as always, we look to you, our great God and King, our shepherd, defender, and friend. O Lord, work these things in us and through us. We pray that Christ would be exalted. We ask it in his name. Amen. So what do you look for in a church? It might be a silly question to ask here since you're here this morning, but maybe not. We live in an area where people come and go all the time with the military. We live in a culture where it's easy to move from place to place and from church to church. And when you think about what is really important and valuable and meaningful in the church, what do you think of? What do you look for? As COVID has affected 
church attendance numbers. There's no small number of pastors trying to answer this question to see if there's something that can be done to get the people back. Maybe it's the children's ministry or the music. Maybe we can do something different with coffee or snacks afterwards. Of course, all those things are important. They might not be the most substantive things we can turn to. As I think about this question, I'm reminded of this, this, this old church we always used to pass on the way to see my grandmother. There was this road that was gorgeous with the trees lining the road and the sun just cutting through the branches a little bit and the Spanish moss hanging down. And as we drove past, there was, I would always keep my eyes out open for this church. It was gorgeous. These, the stonework and the brickwork were amazing. These columns and, and just the, the layout was amazing. It had an immense history dating back to before the Revolutionary War. It was a place that was in quite some demand for weddings. And there was a, even a cemetery associated with the church. People lived, got married, and died there. And it was the sort of church that even people who weren't believers, who had no interest in the church, they would stop to visit this place to the point that, that they had to kind of put a fence around to guide people to the, the right places so that everything didn't get trampled down. What made this church so beautiful, so inviting? Well, it was the ruins of the old Sheldon Church. Burned in the Revolutionary War, rebuilt. Burned in the Civil War, rebuilt. Scavenged for parts and not rebuilt. It was beautiful. It was pristine. It was historical. It was a great place for weddings and for funerals. And it invited all kinds of people there, but it was dead. The actual living church is a big fat mess. We don't, we're not really comfortable with that. We don't look, we don't move to a new place of town and say, where is the messy church? Where is the church where there's dysfunction and frustration brewing? Where is the church that I'm going to have to pitch in and help out or things aren't going to get done? We, we don't look for that. And yet, the church is and always has been a big, fat mess. That's nothing new. The Galatian church was beset with heresy. The Thessalonians had lost so many beloved members, they were starting to, to creep into despair and doubt. The Corinthian church, well, what wasn't happening in the Corinthian church? It was everything. Sex, immorality, arguing, divisiveness, lawsuits among believers. There was a great dysfunction taking place in the Philippian church. There's nothing new about this. It's existed in church after church after church throughout history, and it's here among us. And yet, despite the fact that we too are a big fat mess, 
God has set his love on his people, on his church, and he calls us, his people, to love his church too. How? Why? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to see at least three things. We're going to see that it's right to love the church. That we love the church because Jesus himself loves the church. And that Jesus grows that love in his church for the glory and praise of God. First, let us look here at verse 7 and see that it is a right to love the church of Jesus Christ. Paul is overflowing here with emotion towards the Philippians, and he's not embarrassed about it. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. It is a good thing. It is a true thing. It is a glorious thing for me to love all of you. Not just the pretty ones. Not just the ones who have it all together. Not just the ones, all of them there. He loves. And he's not embarrassed. And he's not ashamed. It's hard It's hard to love the church. We are all so different. Different ages, different backgrounds, different genders, different races, different histories, different stories, different pet peeves, different problems. And we are all so broken. It can be so frustrating to get all of us together. We don't like, human beings do not like to have unsavory and uncomfortable connections. This is why we see such polarization in our country, this is because it's so easy to find that little group of people who line up with you perfectly on all the little things that you believe. They like just the same video games and just the same movies and just the same hobbies as you and you can spend your time just with those people that don't ruffle your feathers at all until they do a brisket hot and fast instead of low and slow and then you unsubscribe we don't like those unsavory connections i remember when obama was elected president i started seeing these bumper stickers around not my president and i thought well that's odd are you german or And then when Trump was elected, I started seeing the same sticker, maybe with a different font and design, not my president. How odd. The the thing that maybe ought to unite us in a democratic republic is the very thing that seems to just tear us all apart because we'd rather our guy be the guy. And if he's not, we're going to take our ball and go home. We do this with everything. We even do it in the church. We look for that place where we can be comfortable, safe, nobody's getting into my business, 
People aren't questioning me. Like, I can just come and go, and it's a part of my life that doesn't cause me any consternation or frustration. Until the pastor preaches that sermon, and I know he must be preaching it right at me. You know, I don't do that, just FYI. Like, if it comes up in the sermon, it's because it's a need. And if the Holy Spirit takes it and applies it to you, blame him. Don't get mad at me. But you could also print up not my pastor bumper stickers if you please. <laughs> but Paul looks at the Philippian church, a, a church that he's getting ready to say some hard things to church that is dysfunctional, where they aren't loving one another well. And he says, it's a right for me to love you all. Because you are partakers with me of grace. We're all in the same boat. We are all dysfunctional. We are all sinners. We are all wretched and gross and Maybe you didn't run through the rain this morning and get smelling moldy, but we all have our own little stenches, if you will, that could drive people away. But Paul says, no, we're all there, but God's grace, we partake of that together. It draws us in. It doesn't push us apart. It makes us united. It, it forms us and molds us and shapes us as a one body. And you see it work itself out. Even in Paul's admonition, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Even in his imprisonment. Now, the Philippians weren't in prison. I mean, maybe some of them were, but it's, it's Paul's the one who's in prison. And that, that wasn't a badge of honor. People were using his imprisonment, as we'll see, as an excuse to heap shame upon Paul and to bring the name of Christ into disrepute. See? They're just in prison. They're just rabble-rousers. But the Philippians understood how the grace of Christ united them to Paul and rather than shying away from that shame, leaned in and sent help and resources and, 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 and supplies and, and encouragement to Paul. They, they prayed for him and with him and they shared in his shame. Even being willing to go out and share in his defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Some of them becoming even more bold to say, oh yes, I'm a Christian, and if that means I have to join Paul in prison, so be it. Here's what I believe. And not just saying it, but confirming it with the way they lived and the way they loved one another, even in their brokenness and even in their frustrations. And Paul looks out at this and just overflows with joy and love because he sees the grace of Christ drawing the people of God together and shaping and forming them as a one. And he says, it is right for me to love the church. 
Do you really love the church? And, and not just the church as a concept that you can read about in Bovink or Burkhoff, but the church as the people who are in the rows and the pews who drive you nuts sometimes. Are you willing not to run from their shame, but to lean into it with a word of grace and encouragement and support? Are you willing, even in how you conduct yourself, to live out that love even when it's hard? It's right that we should do so. But if we're honest, it's not something that we can do on our own. And it's not something Paul can do on his own either. For we find that he loves the church, not in his own strength. You see in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We love the church. Because Jesus himself loves it. And he equips us with his affection for his people. That we might grow in that love. It's easy for us to look out and see the unloveliness that surrounds us. And to give lip service to say we love them, but not to actually do it. See, when you want to know if something is true and strong and real, you, you put it to the test. Will this thickness of metal bar be sufficient? I don't know. Let's compress it until it bends. Let's pull on it until it breaks and see. How strong is it really? And the love that God is calling us to have for the church isn't our own weak, frail, pitiful Selfish love, but the very affection of Christ Jesus that did not bend and did not break, but was willing to bear even in himself all of our sin and all of our shame, even to the point of death on a cross. And with that love with which he loved us, he is equipping us to love one another. When your love is put to the test, will it break? Why do we excuse ourselves? I was tired. People were just demanding things of me and they made me lose my temper. You just don't understand. Like that, that really got to me in a, a, a deep way, and it's frustrating. We excuse ourselves, but when other people do the same thing, 
We come down hard on them. They're just bitter. They're just, they're just an unpleasant person. Lord really needs to do a work in them. You've never, maybe you've never said it, but maybe you've thought it. Because we confuse polite southern platitudes with the affection of Christ and think that if we just have niceness on our face and niceness in our words, that we can say, bless your heart, and have bitterness in our souls all day long. But that is not what we're called to. We're called to love the church with the very affection of Christ Jesus, which does not excuse our own sin while we accuse others. Think about it. When did Christ set his love on you? So when you got your act together, stop cussing. So when you stop looking at porn. Was it when uh, you, you finally read that theology book your pastor keeps recommending to you? Or that you returned the theology book that your pastor loaned you? When did Christ set his love on you? If you know the scriptures, you know the answer. You can answer it a couple different ways. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Not, not before, not after they got it together. So whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God loved the world. He was the initiator. He didn't wait for them. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or maybe most remarkably of all, before the foundations of the world, He predestined us to be conformed to the likeness and image of His Son in love. Why then do we who have received such generous, overwhelming, unrestrained love while we are wicked, weak, and pitiful sinners, hold back our love for the same weak and pitiful sinners that surround us. What if when you get really frustrated with the people around you, and you will, you're gonna, you've been frustrated with me, you've been frustrated with you, you're going to get frustrated with people. That's life. But what if in your frustration and anger and, and discontent, you dug a little bit deeper? What if your feelings of frustration and anger weren't the issue? What if they were, were on top of something that's much deeper? See, anger is always a secondary emotion. What's underneath? Why? What is the need that you have that you feel isn't being met? What is the respect or affirmation that you're seeking that you're not getting? What's going on in your own heart? What if your feelings of frustration towards others revealed more about the idols of your heart than the wickedness of their sin. The 
but friends. What Paul reminds us of here, God is his witness. The more he grapples with Christ's love for him that abounds even to the chief of sinners, the more he overflows with love to all the saints. And so the more you grapple with Christ's love for you, even in your weakness, even in your idolatry, even in your wickedness and sin and frustration, the more you will find he's equipping you to reach out in grace and compassion and kindness and truth to the sinners around you. We love the church because Jesus himself loves it. And Jesus grows the church in that love for the glory and praise of God. Sometimes I think we lose sight of how much we still need to grow. I just had a sabbatical. I don't really need to learn anything else, right? It's not true. There's a thing about fruit trees. We want them to bear fruit. That's what they're there for. I'm sure there's some variants that are just there for the flowers, but I don't want those. I want the ones where I get the peaches or the apples or the fruit. The early fruit, you might as well just toss it. It's not really, like you want that tree to mature and get strong and you don't want the branches to break because you let these bitter apples grow on it. And so you prune fruit trees early on. But you know, they don't just magically keep themselves fertilized and watered and Like, they require care all their days. And if they stop bearing fruits, they may very well be fit for nothing else than the fire. No matter where you are in your walk with Christ, there is a lot of room for you to grow for me to grow. And this is why Paul prays that our love, that the Philippians love, that the love in the church may abound more and more because that fruit of righteousness is still early and a little bitter and maybe good for pies but not good for just fruits. But God isn't just worried about the moment. He is working in us to bear the fruit of righteousness for the day of Christ. That when everybody sees what he has done in and through his church, it will result in praise and glory to God and God alone. And so Paul wants us to abound in love in the whole person more and more. He wants the grace and the love of Christ to change how we think so that we grow in knowledge and all discernment. And this isn't just head knowledge. This isn't just memorizing the shorter catechism. This is lived knowledge, knowledge of Christ, the person of Christ that that affects the way you live so that you can discern the path he would call you to walk in this world. He wants wants our, 
affections and emotions to be transformed by this, to grow in love more and more so that we become the people who approve what is excellent, that we love what's good, and that we don't buy into the silly trinkets of this world. We love what's really good, what is excellent, what is of eternal value. And we pursue that, living in purity and blamelessness for the day of Christ. And that's not perfection. Only Christ is perfect and we are clothed in his righteousness. But that purity isn't the sort of religion that is common in our day where people see the commandments and they want to know how close to the, the line of sin can I get before I break a command. Purity, is that's not pure. Purity goes the other direction. How close to Jesus can I be? And if I'm this close, I want to be closer. And if I'm this close, I want to be closer. And they never tire or weary of drawing nearer and nearer to him and his love and wearing his blameless righteousness as their own. So that when the day of Christ comes and Christ comes back and greets us in person, face to face, we do not cower in fear, but we rejoice in love because our heart's affection has arrived. What do you look for in a church? It's not a bad question. It's an important question. But I wonder sometimes, what does our church look like? Not what am I looking for, but what do we look like? Is it just the same old, same old? A bunch of consumers getting together to receive a prepared package of wisdom from some professorial person who can alliterate? This is just the same place where we find the narrow places where we can be polarized with the world out there, but we just have all the people who think exactly the way we do about all the things, and we don't have to worry about that. It's the place where we just settle for legalism, a list of rules, or selfishness dressed up in religion. What does our church look like? Is it just the same old, same old? Or are we what Alan Noble, our Labor Day retreat speaker, calls a disruptive witness? Do we model and offer something better? Are we consumers or are we apprentices to Jesus, striving to learn to love the church, to love the Lord? the way we ought, the way he loves us. Longing to bear the fruit of righteousness. Willing to share in the suffering and shame of those around us because of who our Savior is. Look, we're no perfect church. We're a bunch of people. 
But we're a bunch of people who have the love and affection of Christ. And he can equip us to love the church the way he does. That we might be a community who live to the glory and praise of God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, help us Help us to grow in this love. Help us to confess our sin of bitterness, of frustration, of anger, to identify the idols that rule our heart and teach us what it means to love with the affection of Jesus Christ. Or teach us what it means to receive the affection of Jesus Christ, to be partakers of his grace and grow us more and more in him, that we might be ready for the day of Christ, that we might live for his glory and the praise of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.